This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Last week, a Houston Chronicle reporter tweeted an image from Jerry Falwell Jr.'s Instagram. The image showed the Liberty University president posing with his arm around a woman at a party with their zippers down and midsections exposed. By Friday, Falwell Jr. agreed to take an immediate and indefinite leave of absence from Liberty University, which he has led since 2007 as president and chancellor. Under Falwell Jr.'s tenure, Liberty has become one of the biggest Christian colleges in the world, drawing thousands of students through its numerous online programs. Falwell Jr. has increasingly drawn controversy, especially as he's enthusiastically supported President Trump and also insulted his opponents on Twitter. Two months ago, Falwell Jr. tweeted an image of the yearbook photo from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's blackface scandal after criticizing the governor's mask policy, a move that angered dozens of black alumni who said that Falwell Jr. should withdraw the racist tweet and resign to focus on politics. Since then, a string of black students and employees have left Liberty this summer over concerns with its treatment of racial issues. Trustees had addressed the tweets with Falwell when that came and defended his leadership. We wanted to discuss Liberty University and where its president and the school sit in the larger landscape of Christian higher ed. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, we have quite the topic to talk about in a gut check this week. So I would love to hear how you're processing this latest development in the story. My goodness. So one of the first things that happened to me when I started working in Christianity Today 25 years ago was that we had a series of investigative reports on, on Liberty University. I was brought up here seeing how much work it was for John Kennedy, who, who is now no longer at this magazine, but has gone on to do great work at Assemblies of God, News Services, one of my bosses here at CT at the time. He did some great investigative pieces looking at the ways in which Mrs. Falwell Sr., was borrowing money kind of off the books a little bit from Thomas Road Baptist Church to pay for big financial problems at Liberty University. And so my introduction to to this world was Liberty University is going to go under any day now because they were doing some very funky and very problematic bookkeeping just to make it through. And Jerry Jr. has very much talked about how he he would he was writing checks on Fridays that they did not have the funds and the accounts to to pay for. This is all going to come crashing down. You know, it's interesting having been here over this time, you know, to be like, to see like, oh, and then we did a report and it was John Kennedy again, who did this article many years later about like, man, things are actually, you know, Liberty University is making a ton of money right now. And a lot of that's because of the boom and, you know, online online learning and that kind of thing. Financially and business-wise, they turned a lot of things around. What was funny about that report was that it was full of all these quotes from Jerry Falwell Jr. talking about how he didn't want to be as controversial as his dad, how he was going to avoid politics, and how he was going to, like, I'm just not interested in the things my dad's interested in. You know, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of a businessman. I'm just a businessman. He's used that a lot lately in the last few years, but it's just interesting. It's just interesting to see when you're met at Christianity, for 25 years, you get this thing where the more things change, the more things stay the same in some ways. With Liberty, it's like you see some of these 
things come back around and around and around. But the story also does change. Like Liberty is definitely a very different school than it was in 1995 when I started. Whole Evangelical Higher Ed World is really different than it was. Whatever, this unzipped Instagram photo, you know, like I, I just didn't spend too much time processing it because it's like, oh, there's one more log on the fire, I guess. But this guy's, you know, kind of fireproof, but he wasn't, you know, now and then you had a, a Republican congressman complain. You had some some other high-end donors start com- to complain and things shifted quickly. But interesting to see some things change and some things some things stay the same. You know, unfortunately, I'm sorry, that's my gut check on, on most weeks for quick to listen, Morgan, but there you I go. I think it's important you nodded to this, Ted. The exit quote for this piece that we did in September 2009 that was kind of a look at what's happening in at Liberty at the time is this from Jerry Jr. People ask me why I don't get more active in political and social issues. It wouldn't be fair for me to focus on anything but Liberty. That is an interesting quote in light of everything that has happened. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, but obviously the close political connections that Falwell Jr. has cultivated have been a huge thing, I think, that have kind of made the school in many ways gain even more mainstream notoriety. I would say, obviously, a lot of my own beliefs, perceptions, feelings about Christian institutions are really shaped by working here at CT. And what's interesting is that someone who has been, I think, associated with the institution even longer than I've been on staff is Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a former Liberty professor. She left over the summer and is now at a different, she's at a Southern Baptist school now. But I always found it was really interesting that someone who was in many ways spoke for us, I would say, I think that's fair to say, on many different issues with a lot of graciousness and kindness and conviction in many ways could not have been more of a polar opposite to who Falwell was, especially as he got more active on social media and more acerbic and outspoken and kind of brazen in many ways. I've always kind of tried to hold this like tension of what Liberty University is as a space that somehow accommodated both of them. Yeah. Well, you know, Liberty always, always had kind of some of these professors who had a much kind of different footprint than the leadership. Uh, Something in Elmer Towns, for example, who was, you know, kind of, he was kind of a senior statesman a little bit when I got started, but he co-founded, he co-founded Liberty. He was one of the main guys. You know, he was a guy who was known for his works on church growth, church leadership, you know, Sunday school stuff. He was Mr. Sunday school in, in some ways, big on prayer and fasting. When I get started, he was the person who was heavily associated with liberty in, in some similar ways to the way Karen Swallow Pryor was identified a few years ago. The, the kind of like, well, you know, Jerry Falwell's in trouble, but, you know, I, I sure do like this other person. You know, liberty has that going for it. And so it's kind of interesting to see. I mean, you know, there's lots of great things about liberty. We can go on and on about it. There's, there's, some, there's some positive things liberty's contributed to the world. But that's what we're here for. That's what, that, that's what this podcast is about, Morgan. So we should we want to talk about the role Liberty University has in the the world of Christian higher education. You know, I wanted to get someone who literally wrote the book on kind of the the breadth and depth of Christian higher education, and that's Bill Ringenberg. Bill Ringenberg is faculty emeritus at Taylor University, where he was a longtime history professor and associate dean of academic affairs. He is the author of The Christian College: A History of Protestant Higher Education in America, a very excellent book. Got it on my bookshelf here, as well as The Christian College and Academic Freedom, which came out a few years ago. I've got a, a PDF of that book. I've not had a chance to read yet, but I've, I've popped into it. We've done some work on, on Christian higher ed and academic freedom, which is kind of a big deal these days. Like I said, he's he, know, he knows this landscape. So, Bill, welcome to Quick to Listen. Thank you. 
Great to have you, Bill. All right. So let's maybe start with an overall discussion about the landscape of the world that we call Christian higher education. There's research universities and private liberal arts colleges and community college. What would you say counts as Christian higher ed? I would say those institutions, both on the institutional level and the level of the faculty members employed, have a worldview which sees the Christmas story and the resurrection story at the heart of human history, being the coming of God to the world in Christ. In that context, the scholars who embrace that worldview then seek to understand this God and the world that he created as well as they possibly can. Help me understand, kind of, there's different kinds of Christian higher ed institutions, right? So, you know, at Christianity, we do a lot of reporting on schools that are part of this kind of uh, the Council of Christian Colleges and, and Universities, which is a lot of the Christian higher ed schools. But there's a lot of schools that I know are, you know, Christian higher education that are not necessarily part of the CCCU world. I was talking to some folks about Christian colleges, and they kept kind of using the term Bible college and Christian college interchangeably. And I'm like, well, no, the Bible college and Christian college is a little bit different. But could you kind of explain a little bit like the families within Christian higher education? You referenced CCCU, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities. That's sort of uh, overall umbrella organization of Christian liberal arts colleges, which there may be, what, 200 or so members now. The Bible colleges, which probably number between 100 200 are later in origin. The 20th century fundamentalist colleges such as Liberty are responses to the secularization movement in Christian higher education. People are surprised sometimes to learn that at one point up to the post-Civil War period, to be a college at all in America was to be a Christian college. They say, what? Really? Uh, that was true with very few exceptions. Maybe uh, Thomas Jefferson's University of Virginia, possibly Ben Franklin's University of Pennsylvania, more or less secular, but they were outliers. They were, they were exceptions. There were Bible colleges, Christian liberal arts colleges, graduate theological seminaries, two to three hundred Roman Catholic colleges, almost all liberal arts institutions. Those are the major groups of religious higher education in America. Bob Andringa identifies 900 religiously affiliated institutions. Uh, That's probably on the high side. There are a lot of them. A lot of them are small. In the aggregate, they're smaller than much larger uh, state universities and uh, secular institutions. We talked about some of these, these Bible colleges, and, and, and you know some of those were, were formed, as you mentioned, kind of in that fundamentalist, modernist fight around the, the turn of the last century, moving through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And that's when you would have had a school like, well, I guess, you know, Moody Bible Institute might have uh, been in that, at that group, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which became Biola University. So it seemed like you had this first wave that was the Moody and Biola wave. Is there like a second wave in the 40s? In 50s, where you have more personality-oriented schools, because I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, when I think of, I guess Moody, Moody is Moody is very personality-focused, now that I think about it. I don't think of Moody and Biola in the same 
thinking that I tend to think of like the Oral Roberts University, Regent uh, University, Pat Robertson's Regent University, and uh, Liberty Baptist, or now Liberty University. Is there a different story between the, well, it's a fundamentalist, I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean that in the historical term of the fundamentalist movement that evangelicalism kind of was part of, and also neo-evangelicalism came out of, that 20s and 30s Bible Institute creation, and this 40s, 50s schools that became, you know, in some cases, epically big. The Bible college movement was both a, a response to secularization in higher education and also an outgrowth of growth of interests in the late 19th century in foreign missions. Bible colleges had a dual role uh, as a professional, an undergraduate theological professional institutional type, trained domestic ministers and trained overseas missionaries. Moody that you mentioned, along with Nyack of New York, Biola of Los Angeles, were among the very earliest of this type of institution, beginning just before and around the turn of the 20th century. The fundamentalist movement produced some colleges, too. They came a little bit later. The denominational schools, mainline denominational schools, were still in the process of moving toward secularization from, oh, say, the 1920s to the 1960s. After about 1960, if college was going to move secular, it probably hadn't done so by then. The surviving Orthodox Christian liberal arts colleges were demoralized. They had lost many of their best institutions, their best funded, their most affluent institutions. They were licking their chops. They had to sort of regroup. They were doing that during the last generation of the 20th century. Liberty comes along as a part of that response to secularization and their other fundamentalist colleges uh, at that time, many of them taking advantage of popular media, radio and television, some of them taking advantage of ministry of well-known evangelists and using those influences to found colleges that uh, develop sort of from personalities, ministers, people more known for religion than for academe. And the fundamentalist colleges have suffered to this day from that. Are they churches? Are they religious institutions? To what extent are they academic institutions? Are they pure in their intellectual open search for truth? The search for truth, Christian liberal arts colleges explain, is the search for God. They seek to be very broad and open and not particularly defensive. Bible colleges, a little more specialized, limited curriculum, some of them a little more narrow in their willingness to look broadly for this search for God and truth in his world. The Bible colleges and the fundamentalist colleges have always been a little bit, and this varies depending upon the school, the suspect as to whether they are truly acknowledging the spirit of intellectual open inquiry in the search for God, as opposed to simply having things defined and telling the students what to believe rather than help them to learn how to ferret out truth for themselves, even while starting with the common base that the Christian institutions have always had in the central primary Christian verities. I'm a graduate of Wheaton College and you know, back in the, in the 90s, and there was a little bit of, I don't know, looking down on noses was not implies that there was a lot of there was a lot of thought given to it and that that, that wasn't necessarily the case it was just that it, liberty did not necessarily register 
among students, at least, and faculty may have had a different different view, but as doing kind of the same thing that we were doing at Wheaton, which gets a little bit of maybe what you were getting at there. I'm wondering if there is kind of a, a cultural split. Like, I'm wondering why so many resources went into creating new institutions in these times when there were already a lot of, at least vocally Christian colleges at the time that were like, you know, saying, you know, we are an alternative to these colleges that have that have gone secular. Wheaton during the 20s and 30s took a very strong turn toward, even as kind of some of the fundamentalist and modernist split was happening, and even fundamentalists were dividing about how much to be engaged in, in mainstream denominations. You know, Wheaton and president at the time, J. Oliver Buswell, took the kind of harder, more fundamentalist line to say, no, you should, you know, you should leave the denominations. The denominations are completely corrupt at this point. So I'm wondering, like, did the folks like Falwell and and Roberts and, and Robertson, did they look at places like Taylor or Viola or Wheaton or, or Gordon and say they're not Christian enough? Or, or was it that, well, they're just not, what was the unique selling proposition that they kind of came into the world with? Jerry Fowell Sr. came out of a fundamentalist movement. He's a graduate of Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Virginia, a, a denominational school, if there ever was one. They wanted all their preachers to come from that school or the one or two others that were similar to it, standing for the fundamentalists and founding new colleges, founding lots of new colleges. Graduates were to go out and develop true, really pure Christian colleges. Uh, If the Christian liberal arts colleges are a little bit suspicious of fundamentalism and even of the Bible colleges, the reverse is true also. I think the Bible colleges uh, see themselves as pure. They may worry about the uh, purity of the religion of the liberal arts colleges, and the liberal arts colleges, Christian liberal arts colleges, worry about the intellectual respectability and even intellectual honesty of the two types of schools. So there's sort of a, an intramural, in-house uh, little uh, civil war going on between the two types, and oftentimes friendly, but the issues are never too far below the surface. <laughs> sure. You know, the founder of the magazine that we're at, Christianity Today, our first editor was Carl Henry. For his entire time here at Christianity Today, he was simultaneously attempting to launch a, or get the funds, uh, you know, do various things to put together a Christian college of his own, a, a, a kind of major kind of Christian research university. And if you read his autobiography, you kind of see that this is one of his great, you know, frustrated, you know, lost dreams as he was not able to kind of pull together this school that he had dreams of creating. I'm wondering if, was that part of the same impulse? What was the difference between this school that Carl Henry kind of dreamed of or, or that he lamented did not exist and the school that Jerry Falwell looked at the world and said, this, this school does not exist? Carl Henry had a great idea. One of the really big handicaps of the Christian college movement with all their emphasis on the integration of faith and learning. How do you bring these two together? Their professors come to their teaching positions in most cases from institutions which didn't teach them any of that because they were more secularly oriented. Henry's ideal, there would be a great Christian graduate school that could provide that sort of training in the liberal arts. We have fine theological seminaries in the evangelical community, some professional schools even, 
but we're rather short on graduate training, particularly at the doctoral level in the liberal arts. And uh, so when professors come to places like Wheaton and Taylor, they sort of have to uh, learn on their own and with their resources of their internal faculty development programs what Art Holmes' idea about the integration of faith and learning is all about. I'm curious, as we're talking about all of this, what type of students ended up coming to Liberty in its early days, and how did it go about marketing itself to them? Being a a fundamentalist institution, they appealed to some of the same people that had been going for the previous generation or more to a place like Bob Jones University. Probably the same thing could be said for uh, Pensacola Christian College in Florida. Liberty has uh, grown in size beyond uh, Bob Jones. I think Bob Jones has suffered in enrollment because of this. Liberty has done it somewhat like Fine Sister College here in Indiana. Indiana Wesleyan has done by far finding a marketing niche to raise uh, a lot of money to help build the home campus into something much more than it had been before. In the case of Indiana Wesleyan, it was their regional learning centers where they took the college to the people, a little like Mission Field, something called theological education by extension, to take the college to the people who don't find it convenient or even affordable to drop out of work, go back to a residential college. Falwell School did that through marketing their online program not unique or even original to them, but they're the ones who developed it to the greatest extent, to the largest, I think, of any nonprofit private institutions in in the country. So for all of the critique that I would have to offer of liberty, I do salute them for finding a way to make that happen. I wish we had a Christian college that could help to find a way to make the the fine product that comes out of a place like uh, Wheaton or Calvin or, or Tater to be more affordable. There, there isn't a lack of Christian young people and Christian families that would like to send their, their students to good Christian colleges, but there is a lack of those who feel like they can afford the high tuition costs for doing so. And we haven't been very creative and figuring out ways to make more options. We offer mostly, among the premier Christian liberal arts colleges, we offer mostly a Cadillac model, and we need to figure out a way to have some Ford and Chevrolet models. Uh, If the virus isn't going to catch up with us in Christian college education, the issue of pricing ourselves out of the market may catch up with us here in the the near future. Uh, So we may have to go to the drawing board and be a little more creative This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, 
a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Bill, I, I'm curious, was Jerry Falwell Sr.'s association with the school, was that seen for many people as a positive of being a part of going to Liberty, or was that something that was just kind of incidental? Oh, I'm sure it was very positive for those who followed his widespread radio and ministry, began his radio ministry. A lot of people saw this as one of the safest colleges. Uh, some probably even saw it as about the only really trustworthy Christian college to go to. One thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is, you know, the thing that Falwell, <laughs> I think for Falwell Sr., if you would have asked him, you know, what, what's the thing about liberty that's bigger than Falwell, probably would have, you know, answered some of the things we talked about. Probably would have said sports. I mean, it was a big part of Jerry Falwell Sr.'s dream to have Liberty be a place that was that was like his number one priority. Was it's got to be it's got to be a Division One school. Got to have Division One basketball. It's got to have Division One football. He just pushed that and pushed that and pushed that. We interviewed him over the years on that. It was you know he was like man you know first of all you know you get, we, we want to show that Christians can compete at the highest levels of everything. The other thing is he you know he talked talked for a little bit about you know you'll get the schools and that's what can bring in you were talking about alternate funding football and high sports a winning sports team brings in alumni dollars which lets you do a whole lot of things that a division three a liberal arts school just can't do i know that this has been you know something that's come up in a, in a number of christian colleges uh, you know calvin recently had a big debate about their their football team and and of course classically baylor has had a number of major sports scandals that have caused people to you know say like you know how how's this going at a, at a, at a christian school is there a Division one sports culture that's a, a little bit at odds with kind of that faith and learning culture. What do you see as kind of the role of, I guess, what, what, what did Division one sports mean for Liberty University's growth and vision? That emphasis on athletics at Liberty oh, is a development of interest. Some might say fixation of Jerry Falwell Sr. He did have a focus on bigness. So does Jerry Falwell Jr. A lot of Christian colleges would... Uh, look askance at that, big big in what area. I think it's a reflection, the desire to grow to be 50,000 and grow to be big enough to play Notre Dame in football, hundreds and hundreds of stations are broadcasting the program. Bigness isn't necessarily bad, but it's not necessarily good. Bigness, especially as practiced at Liberty and as practiced in a lot of independent Christian churches and colleges, carries a variety of temptations because oftentimes when when independent goes with big 
there oftentimes is an accountability problem. Family empires are risky business, whether churches or Christian colleges, uh, inherited uh, positions of leadership as opposed to selection by merit are also risky. Uh, Personality-based leadership, often risky for not providing enough accountability. Uh, We're mortals. We Christians are still the sinners. We're redeemed sinners. But power is heady stuff, whether it be power in terms of having big-time sports or power in terms of being the biggest Christian college. Probably single biggest problem that Jerry Falwell has Jr. has faced is the lack of accountability. He has this big empire and these thousands of people whose employment is dependent upon him, and you don't rock the ship. Who's going to be the prophet Nathan to call out David when he sins? Not too many are confident enough to be willing to do that, and yet every leader needs that. One of the greatest things in my mind about Billy Graham is his humility. Way back before he became so big, but was starting to see the possibility of that. He said he was scared to death. He knew the history of uh, revivalism. He was scared to death that he would do something to dishonor the cause of Christ. So he built in some checks of accountability, a board that would be independent and he would be subject to. That was most wise. Jerry Falwell has needed that and uh, is suffering because he hasn't had that. One of the things I remember about Jerry Seniors, he 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 also had some of those <laughs> impulses as well, and and for a long time was was a bit of a David without a Nathan. But I do remember a little bit near the end of his tenure, he did have this moment of repentance. It is interesting that when there's these scandals in the evangelical world, for Falwell, the kinds of scandals you had with Falwell Senior are were were quite a bit different than the ones you would have with Falwell Junior. Both of them, I think, had a bit of a uh, were dismissed by a number of people as, as boorish or who let, who let these guys in a you know higher education kind of kind of approach. But I think Falwell it tended to be loose tongue on on some political comments. But I just couldn't see Falwell Senior ever doing something like an Instagram photo with his zipper down, deliberately trying to look uh, sexually scandalous. I'm trying to figure out in this kind of evangelical world, kind of, and especially in the kind of the evangelical neighborhood that Liberty University lives in, I'm trying to figure out how Falwell, Falwell Jr. What, I guess this is the question I've heard from so many people. What to, kind of what took so long? This was not kind of the first time he made inappropriate remarks that people would say, "Wow, that is not what a Christian leader should be saying." His response tended to be, "Well, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm just a businessman. I'm a real estate developer, just like Trump." And I'm trying to figure out, like, is there something shifting in that neighborhood as well as in evangelicalism overall? What does it indicate that perhaps this Instagram picture was was a bridge too far? Such a highly visual, visual and graphic thing that reminds me of the impact that television played in the civil rights movement, in the Vietnam War, even more recently in the Black Lives Matter issue, when you can see something happening, something gross happening visually, it has a a greater impact as opposed to simply reading something in the newspaper that may be a little bit ambiguous. It might be explainable 
that picture of the last week or so here, that's right in your face. You can't <laughs> denial. If you could be denying before, you denial is no longer possible. I'm amazed that Falwell would allow that to go online. I, I'm less shocked by the issue of morality than the issue of it's such a dumb thing to do. He, he had to know, I should, you should think, uh, to get, get himself in trouble. Seems like a death wish or, or something, but uh, who knows? Um, maybe his mind is working more and more like that of his mentor in some ways, his model in some ways, uh, President Trump, and think you are uh, in, invincible or something. Uh, one of the things that can come with too much power and not enough accountability, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring that up. I was reading David French, who wrote about Falwell this week, and he wrote this, that, quote, Jerry Falwell, however, was blazing a new trail. He was living his sin out loud, careening from controversy to controversy, even as his students and faculty lived under the traditional strict moral roles of Christian education. In response, Falwell didn't bother pretending to be a spiritual leader. Instead, his argument was the higher education equivalent of a scoreboard. His success excused his sin. Bill, I, I'm curious, do you remember a particular turning point in Falwell Jr.'s tenure at Liberty where he seemed to become more flagrant in how he was trying to, I don't know, maybe start with pushing the envelope and maybe talk about his successes more? Up to the last week, it seemed more gradual. There were multiple incidents, and I think they became more blatant the more he was fascinated with politicians, particularly Donald Trump. He uh, was something of a shy, backward person, and you wouldn't have seen this earlier. But growth of power sometimes makes you immune in your thinking. It needed someone to be looking over his shoulder and tapping him on the shoulder, and he apparently didn't have that. I, I have a question on something that I've, I've been wrestling with. So I have a friend, a um, good friend. I'm, I'm going to steal a story from her, and I apologize if I, I won't share this story. I won't name her just because you know, I have permission for that. But she was traveling abroad into a place that had very, very, very few Christians, somewhat rural, mostly mostly Muslim country. It came up in conversation, and naturally as, as a conversation, as, as a friendship developed, where she explained that she was a Christian. The person said, oh, a Christian? Like Jerry Faltwell? And that was the only point of contact that this person ha had had with Christianity. That was their only, you know, that was like, okay, I know what a Christian is. I know this, you know, character, Jerry Falwell, who has been in my kind of news feed. This was Jerry Falwell Sr. at the time. She really wrestled for a moment there to say like, oh man, well, how do I answer that question? And she just ultimately answered very simply, yes, like Jerry Falwell. Because she's like, you know what, at, at, at one level, as much as I want to say, like, no, I'm a completely different kind of Christian than Jerry Falwell. And oh my goodness, no, absolutely not. And the one hand, she's like, at the end of the day, we are going to spend eternity together, Jerry Falwell and I, and we have a lot of differences. But ultimately, we are brother and sister in Jesus. And yes, ultimately, we are part of the same Christian body. And yes, I am a Christian in the same way that Jerry Falwell is a Christian. And I thought, man, go you. I mean, in a way that it makes me deeply uncomfortable. And I've thought about that story a lot. There is this quick to listen, Christianity is not anywhere in the business of saying, you know, this person's a Christian, this person is not a Christian. But I am wondering if putting everything under evangelical Christianity, if there is a, a different movement. If the difference between, say, a, you're at Taylor, uh, we're here up the street from Wheaton, got a, a board member, Matt Gordon, there's this nexus of CCCU schools that we started with, is Liberty University, and specifically kind of the Jerry Falwell Jr. model of, is it close enough 
to say, yes, this is part of the same broad movement within Christianity. There's a lot of tension, but it's still part of the same basic idea. Or is it now different enough as you would have maybe found between a a Harvard and a Wheaton, you know, 100, 150 years ago, as Harvard or Princeton or Yale or some of these schools that had deep Christian origins, as they began to to move from that into higher criticism and then more into a secular direction. How wide the divide here between mainstream evangelicalism that you would find in the CCCU world and Falwell's Liberty? The CCCU schools are, are surely embarrassed by Falwell. Media, I have a lot of respect for the media. They haven't done us a favor in terms of lumping together the Liberties and the Wheatons, the Falwells and the Billy Graham. I just got in the mail this week a copy of this fairly new uh, 2017 book by Frances Fitzgerald on the Evangelicals. Half of her book is on what I traditionally would have called fundamentalism as opposed to evangelicals. And there's sort of a lumping together in the mind of the media, something that some of us, like Christianity Today and uh, Wheaton and Tater and Calvin, would like to say, uh, that's not us. When you come to some of big picture items, the movement towards secularization in higher education, we probably need all the partners we can get, including the still fairly devout Roman Catholic colleges and uh, so forth. Where do you draw your line? I, I like to have a big tent as much as possible. I would include uh, liberty in my tent when push came to shove, yet I would also want to have dialogue with them and try to help them get better. The evangelicals have their problems. The secular institutions have their problems. There are a limited number of people in the middle that are doing really well in, uh, say, uh, intellectual openness, intellectual honesty. Secularists have problems being intellectually open to the totality of the human condition, human culture, including particularly the religious domain. And fundamentalist schools have problems with being uh, intellectually open uh, also. So we, we all have problems. So my, my instinct is to wrap my arms around the whole world, including including the Falwells. And if you have that posture for embracing everybody and wanting the best for everybody, then you uh, can be a little freer to kindly but firmly tap them on the shoulder when they need that. I'm curious, Bill. Obviously, we opened the show talking about the fact that Falwell Jr. has been placed on or he agreed to take immediate and an indefinite leave of absence from the school. What are your predictions about what happens from here and also what will happen to the reputation of Liberty University? I thought it was interesting also in David French's piece, he had included some statistics there about the dramatically declining number of applications it had received. And this is, I'm talking about for their four-year university program, not their online programs, where in 2015, there were 31,000 students who applied to the school. And last fall in 2019, there were 13,000. He also had some numbers in his piece as well about the number of transfer applications that had decreased as well. So I'm just curious, what do you think is going to happen to the school following this past week? The 30,000 and the 13,000 are for the four-year on-campus program? Yes. Okay. Interesting numbers. 30,000 was pretty good. They have 15,000 and they need to admit about 
5,000 every year. That's, that's a pretty good ratio, but it's come down dramatically, you're suggesting, and surely it'll come down again, given what's just happened this week. There may be a difference between the, the short run and the long run, and uh, it probably will be a big difference depending on how the uh, trustees handle that. Can they afford to bring him back? Can they afford not to? I don't know the mindset of the constituency, the uh, Liberty people, to be able to answer that as well as I'd like to. It's going to hurt and probably hurt quite a bit in the short run. A lot depends on how the trustees uh, handle that. There should be some significant censoring of the actions, and I think they'll need to be explicit and overt trustees in that respect. They're kind of the key players for the next chapter of this situation, I think. It'll be interesting to see how that stress is particularly felt at Liberty. But as we just reported on our site this week, Christian colleges across the board are facing massive issues, not just COVID-19 issues, but with declining enrollments just because of uh, demographics, because of increasing tuition, because of reduced job markets. You know, we just reported this week that in the last few months, more than 230 faculty and staff positions have been cut uh, evangelical colleges and universities, including a lot of the places that we've talked about as premier, you know, your, your Calvins and your Bethels and all, all the way down. So Christian higher ed in general is facing a major reckoning and then Liberty itself, marketing itself is the, the largest Christian university, <laughs> probably facing some of the largest strain in these coming years. Tough, tough time to be a college president. Yeah. <laughs> I would not wish that on, 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 on friends. <laughs> well, Bill, this is a really interesting conversation to hear your thoughts about where things are going to go. And I'm sure we will be talking about Christian higher ed later on the podcast. Yeah, like we've mentioned right now, there's a lot of stuff happening in there. Not a lot of it good, but a lot of stuff happening. So for people who have feedback on this podcast, you can send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. So send us your thoughts and opinions there. I'm particularly eager to hear from Liberty alumni because I know have a few listening to the show. I'm particularly eager to hear about what you have received as uh, the gifts of of a Liberty education, because I know I've heard that from a number of friends of mine who who are graduates of Liberty. Always, always curious about about those kinds of things. Send us notes. We want to hear them. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted and I are definitely ready to share stuff that brought us joy. That's right. I have an easy, I, this is the easiest, one of the easiest weeks for me. Morgan, you already know this, but our listeners do not. I got a puppy. I got a brand new eight-week-old puppy this week. That's one of the reasons why I'm frustrated about being in the office with no power at my house because I have to be here and not there. I worked most of yesterday with this puppy sitting at my feet. It is the cutest thing. Let me tell you, the cure for the COVID blues is a little, a little eight-week-old cockapoo. So yeah, precious moment. I don't have much more to say about that. I have no board game related to getting a new puppy. Actually, I think I might, but I will pass on that this week. Are you posting uh, pictures on Twitter of your... I am, I'm not. Well, no, I guess I'm not. I don't post pictures of my kids for sure. And, you know, I guess I'll leave my dog off of there as well. <laughs> How about you, Morgan? What brought you joy this week? So... One of my good friends is leaving Chicago next week, and he and I and another friend went on a kind of like bucket list bike ride Sunday. Actually really fun to go to 
places with people who know the city really well, but also we found places that we hadn't been to that were actually kind of important that we hadn't been to. So one of those places was Graceland Cemetery. And I don't really go to graveyards normally, but this was really interesting to find different people who had notable connections to Chicago to see their grave sites. One of the most prominent was George Pullman's Pullman dude who ran a luxury railroad car company, for lack of a better way to articulate his profession. His site was very ostentatious. It had a giant pillar, <laughs> among other things. And a couple blocks down from... Now, is this the, in the old Pullman neighborhood? Is this in, in, in what no, used to this, be Pullman? the cemetery is actually like a block, or not a block, like a half mile from Wrigley Field. So that was cool. And then the Palmers, who were another very, very wealthy family, had like a miniature Parthenon as their <laughs> burial site. So that was just pretty, you know? I, now, was this on your bucket list? This was on, uh, just, I'm, 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 I'm yes. trying to pull on Yes, this going part. to the cemetery was. Going to the cemetery, you were like, you know what I really want to do? Yep. Go to the cemetery. Oh, that's all right. That's well, all it was right. one of the things. Then we went to a really nice place that apparently I have walked past 17,000 times and never known was there, which is this like lily pad garden. And it's right next to the zoo. So I love that garden. I love that garden. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. If you're ever in Chicago, don't miss the Lily Pad Garden. You go to the it's it's right between the uh, the zoo. It's the north end of the Lincoln Park Zoo, across the street from the Peggy Nutterbart Nature Museum. So that's a day right there. You do the zoo, you do the butterfly garden at the Nature Museum. Yeah. You go to the Nature Museum. There's a na- there's a pond by the Nature Museum, and I kept thinking it was that, and it definitely wasn't that. And it was really no. special and beautiful. Loved it. So sad that my friend is moving, but happy that we could use him moving <laughs> as an excuse to <laughs> go to some really cool places. That is good. That's a good, that's, those are good bucket <clears throat> life and death. That works. Yes. All right. People can find me. I'm on Twitter at M E P A Y N L. I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson with an E. You can still ask me about board game recommendations, but I won't send you dog pictures. Bill, what, what was your precious moment in, in your recent life here? If God would allow me, I'd love to go everywhere, meet everybody see everything, but that's not going to happen. (laughs) One way that Becky and I have doing that somewhat vicariously is through the beautiful DVDs that we purchase for our new 4K television, the travel programs which uh, go around the world uh, showing animal life, human life, these vivid colors. We watch an hour or so each evening after supper. That's a, a joyful experience. That is, you are singing my song. What is, what's one of your favorites? So tell me, tell me one of the, one of the shows you've been particularly oh, loving. The BBC programs of, they began with Earth, n- n- nature programs. Yeah. Not thinking the names of all of them. Oh yeah. The, the Life series and the planet, Blue they, Planet. Yes. Yes. That's, that sort of thing. Those are great. I love those. Those are, those used to be on Netflix. We used to watch them constantly at our house. All right. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on with us. And that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. The transcript is done by Boon Miyashola. Ted already put out a great call to action to encourage you guys to write to us at podcast. There's an S in it. Podcast at ChristianityToday.com. And again, you can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast on there as well. And if you would like to rate and review the show overall, please go to Apple Podcasts, the best place to do that. We will see you all next week.
Bye.